This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we're on another forced march. We tackle the dictator's handbook, why bad behavior is almost always good politics, by Bruce Bueno de Mesquita and Alistair Smith. I teach you the rules, rules of success. Yeah, got five rules for life. Five rules for life. <laughs> There's that one book. I think it's like Robert Greene, dude. I see people get this book sometimes where it's like the laws of power or whatever. Mm. And it's like it, it's it's this quasi like Machiavelli. It's like they're trying to almost fuse like Machiavellian style advice, but with self-help stuff. And, you know, <laughs> bas- basically teaching people how to act like a sociopath. Right, because people find it, most people find it very hard to do because there's something maybe inhuman about it. Right. There's also a book I guess he wrote, I've, I've just skimmed sections of it, and, you know, even doing that I had to take like a shower afterwards. He wrote a book like called Seduction. And oh, it's, God. It's, it's like the same kind of shit. <laughs> like, basically, you know, it's, it's basically the dentist system. Right. Yeah, uh, from yeah, It's Always yeah, Sunny, yeah. explicated to book length. Um. This book that we read is another uh, patron request. Uh, is structured essentially as a handbook for dictators, the dictator's handbook, and yeah. it's basically tried to abstract the rules for the game, the rules of you know how to basically effectively run a dictatorship. Well, how to run any government? That's one of the striking things about this is that the authors claim that governments don't really differ in kind like dictatorship democracy whatever it's kind of on a continuum and that these the their essential kind of theory of the selectorate is really really says more about how people will behave politically what the rules of the game are and then even what i find perhaps most fascinating and objectionable about the book how they should, how things should be, because well, the rules of the game are such. So, I mean, I'm I'm immediately suspicious of anything that starts out where it's like, listen, man, I'm talking about reality, okay? We're just gonna talk about reality here and how things work in the real world. Well, it's 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 that standard like materialist. We're going to use logic. Let's be Vulcans about this. Let's put social conventions aside. Let's let logic and rationality be our only guides. Part of the problem is that this is written clearly for a general audience, um, but it is apparently back. It's it's based upon like academic research that these guys were doing in political mm-hmm. science. Yeah, and in particular, the logic of political survival, uh, a, a thousand page or whatever tome that I'm probably going to end up reading because I found this a pretty interesting read. You think you, you think so? You think it? I don't know. I mean, it's tough. It's tough to say because I, maybe that it contains more of what they really think, because it it feels like they pull punches in certain ways on this that they might not if they were writing in a more purely academic context. You know, I think they 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 seem to be almost hedging their bets against, you know, the potential pearl clutching of like the Reader's Digest set that they're aiming for here. You know what I'm saying? Well, they do want to like 
they do want to evoke a little pearl clutching, don't they? This That's why they'll credit Kim Jong-il or like other dictators for following their rules well. Mm-hmm. I think I think they are trying to provoke you morally a little bit because they're making the point that like the rationality that comes out of these things is well, the subtitle says it all how bad behavior is almost always good politics that the this like inhuman style of behavior if you're going to be structuralist if you if you're going to be materialist about it right like you you don't want to condemn the actors but you want to understand the structure right because the structure produces the behavior. So it's it's kind of funny in that it is it is one of those rational choice arguments that behaves very much like a structuralist argument in that you elaborate the rules of agency in order to essentially <laughs> kind of let people off the hook for, <laughs> for how they behave in a way that does make sense, honestly. I'm, I'm not... But yeah. there's something objectionable about it. There's something very objectionable about it. Like... <laughs> I mean, I would kind of respect it more if they stuck, if they stuck closer to the bit uh, throughout the end of it, because even even they eventually can't be just complete nihilists. They have to, they have to develop some kind of something prescriptive, something of, you know, how do we, how do we take this knowledge then and you apply it to produce better politics? But if you take their framework seriously, you can't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to. I want to get to. I want to get to this later. We should maybe start like the the book begins in the introduction. It talks about the case of a town called Bell, California, and essentially, Bell, California, is a small town that was you know underwater more or less. Uh, it was taken over by a city manager, Robert Rizzo. It was it's basically a mostly poor and Hispanic town. Uh, he, he takes over a city manager, has the job for seventeen years, more or less from how they describe. You know, balances the budget is a Fairly competent administrator. And then it turns out that the dude had embe- embezzled how much money? Let's see. About se- uh, by, the end of, <laughs> by the end of his tenure, he was embezzling about $787,000 a year. And they kind of use this in their framework as the first and almost primary case study to help you think about how to understand how politics works. Basically, there were, there were limits on how much of the salaries that city council members in California could be paid, set by the California legislature in 2005. So they basically set it up to be a charter city, which is not subject to the same kind of transparency and scrutiny. It's really just subject to its charter as opposed to a general city. Well, they understood when they did it that most people don't vote in special elections. So the amount of people they had to get to vote for it was very, very small. Then they were able to continue to... he basically. The way he managed to do it was he made sure that every city council member was paid an exorbitant amount of money for their meetings. So they were all in on the to, to attend meetings. So they were all in on the take and they were all making a ton of money. Now, the others argue he did a good job, but he didn't do, you know, almost a million dollars a year. Good job. And the methods that he was able to develop this, this is very similar to how political power works generally, particularly in underdeveloped uh, third world like tin pot dictatorships. <laughs> yeah. And so more or less, they elucidate like a, yeah, a list of five rules and a couple other like schemas to try to explain like how, how you are bound to act as a political actor. There's a couple of the main takeaways that book has that come in the first chapter. <sighs> 
So one of the principles that they assert in the first chapter of rules, rules of Politics is that they say, quote, for leaders, the political landscape can be broken down into three groups of people, the nominal selectorate, the real selectorate, and the winning coalition. The nominal selectorate includes every person who has at least some legal say in choosing their leader. They also call these people interchangeables. The nominal selectorate is basically comes from a pool of a potential support for a leader. Uh, so basically, this would mean like the average voter. And they even extend this to include, say, the average voter in the Soviet Union, who they argue doesn't really have much more power than the average American citizen. Yeah, what do you, th- what do you I, th- I feel like we should read more of this because it's like, it's kind of amazing in how, like, it re- it's a sophisticated form of, like, defenses of the Soviet Union, I've heard, essentially, and, like, deflations of government in general. It kind of gets maybe to the heart of why people feel that voting in political democracies is empty, while also kind of having a vocabulary for explaining what the difference between voting in the Soviet Union and voting in, you know, the United States is, even if there is like a similar mechanism of like how decision making is is more or less disguised. Well, I think the term the term interchangeables is a good way to describe mm. the nominal selectorate because that's exactly what makes them the nominal selectorate. It's their interchangeability and their serialization, right? They are not groups with agency like capable of acting to assert pressure in some way that has influence. They're just a serialized mass that, you know, gets, you know, okay, maybe in the USSR they got an up or down on whoever was nominated by the party. You know, and here they get a choice between, you know, two major parties that you pretty much have to vote for if you want to have any effect whatsoever. Oh, yeah. No, the authors just make a direct comparison between having a choice between two people and, you know, having the ability to vote yes or no on a candidate that the party puts forward. Like, in, a, in an essential way, the book is very, very like, eh, <laughs> this, this isn't that different. Like, even though the book does develop a language for describing why it's different. Yeah, they, they, they kind of walk this back. Again, they start off very strong, but later on they'll sort of – they'll begin doing this kind of sleight of hand with, like, these different groups and how they actually function, uh, particularly, like, in societies that the authors like. Um, so, okay, the, the other group, the real selectorate, that's the group that actually chooses the leader. So, basically, whoever's support is truly influential. So, like, their examples would be – in China, this consists of anyone who votes within the party or the UK members who basically uh, back members of parliament from the majority party. They, they, call, they also call the group the real selectorate. They refer to them as influentials. The subset of the, the third group is a subset of the real selectorate. It's called the winning coalition. And these are the essential supporters without whom the leader would be completely finished. Uh, these are the people, yeah, for whom... If they want to survive in office, they have to keep these people happy. Uh, they're also called essentials. Um, and they argue the examples that they include would be, in the United States, the winning coalition, they would define them as the minimal number of voters who give the edge to one presidential candidate or another. These are the swing voters. Right. We can already see here maybe the limitations of their analysis you know, of the society that they're from. <laughs> one of the tricks... Uh, to really, if you want to understand politics in the United States, is understanding who the real selectorate and the winning coalition are. And 
that isn't at all clear for a variety of reasons. You know, like I think the the narrative that people want to run with is that is exactly as the authors describe here. And there is certainly some truth to that. But there's also other groups. And I think part of the reason that people in the United States are so prone to conspiratorial thinking is precisely because, you know, everyone is a part of what they would call the nominal selectorate or the interchangeables. But they're told that they aren't. Or they're, or they're told that all that, like, the influentials or the essentials are are just the certain sector of voters who swing one way or another or w- exist within the Electoral College. But the mechanisms and institutional basis of American power is a lot more complex than that and also more corrupt than they're presenting it as here. I I don't know. What the, They're essentially presenting a picture where corruption is just the rule of the game and, like – in the classical sense of, you know, buying off people under you, like, and getting them to go your way. So I'm, I think, I think what you're saying, what you said, where they kind of like walk back from how nihilistic their like conclusions actually are in some ways is true. But when you get to some of the declarations towards the end of the book, like we do have some essentially like far right policy advice that, you know, we'll right. get into um, like with regards to, I mean, like, yeah, we should save that discussion for later, I guess. We should just talk about the essentials here. One of the rules that they offer is they talk about you. it's important to basically shuffle the, shuffle the deck. Uh, and basically, the support of the essentials is only forthcoming if a leader provides his essentials with more benefits than they might expect under alternative leadership. There's a lot in this book, and this is where it gets more towards more towards the realm of actual, like, you know, dictatorships or, you know, monarchies or any any situation uh where there's maybe more of a directly tributary relationship going on with this, what they would call a smaller group of essentials, basically about the necessity and usefulness of purges and how, you know, when you get, when you basically survive the revolution or the coup or whatever, you pretty much have to rotate out a lot of like your OGs and day ones as quickly as possible. uh, Lest those people develop any kind of political power or independent of you or decide that, well, hey, we all work together, get rid of the last guy. We don't like this guy. Now let's get rid of him. Yeah. I even describes this as why Castro gets rid of Che Guevara. Like, yes. Which I don't know that much about the deal, but you, you do wonder why Che Guevara like died in the fucking, you know, like spreading revolution in this romantic way rather than like helping to govern the the country just overthrew. Right. Like. Right. Now, I've I've read there's like some de- de- like debate about to what extent this was the case. The impression I get is that it seems like with the Castro Cavera stuff that Castro was one of the few people who seemed to like Guevara <laughs> within like the inner circle there. But Guevara was talking mad shit about the USSR at a time when they were really dependent on their aid. So there probably was at some point some kind of conversation like, "What are we going to do here, dude?" <laughs> you know? Yeah, let's 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 send him to the jungles and uh, and apparently cut his aid. Like, cut his aid when he's in the jungles? Like, that's... That's a... That's an execution of extra steps. Like, if that... If that if this all checks out. Because, I mean, look, like... As much as I appreciate, like, the general, like... Hey, let's, like, use mathematics to analyze politics. There's so much, like, sus going on here that, you know... You do want to, like... Check up on these things. Maybe not take their word for it. Like, see what other... What other, like, political dynamics are happening. Because the beauty of a theory like this is that it is simple, right? Like, oh, yeah. Oh, any society? Don't worry about it. There's three essential things you need to know, right? Like, 
sort of, it's not a very comforting theory. It's a pretty uh, dismal theory, but you know, it is something that you can understand. And it does make sense of not just why people act like they do when they're in power, but how like petty power squabbles work and how people that are just people that are like around politics start acting this way, right? This kind of thing goes down. They basically go anybody in any role anywhere. Their first, any role of power of any kind at any scale, pretty much like their first and foremost task is to hold on, is to keep and hold on to power. Right. The Tropico rule. And so every, everything that comes first before everything else that you do. So they also outline basically five, five hard and fast rules. Rule one, keep your winning coalition as small as possible. Rule two, keep your nominal selectorate or interchangeables as large as possible. Rule three, control the flow of revenue. Uh, rule four, pay your key supporters just enough to keep them loyal. And rule five, don't take money out of your supporters' pockets to make the people's or uh, the nominal selectorate's lives better. And the examples that they provide to this in the United States would be rule one, keep your coalition winning, winning coalition as small as possible. They point to gerrymandering. Rule two, keep your nominal selectorate as large as possible. They point to immigration. They also uh, point to uh, Lenin. Uh, bravo to Vladimir Ilyich Lenin for introducing universal adult suffrage in Russia's old rigged election system. Lenin mastered the art of creating a vast supply of interchangeables. He, he congratulates Kim Jong-il of North Korea of the contemporary master of de- ensuring dependence on a small coalition. Rule six, if all else fails, legalize weed. <laughs> people will be too, too yeah. uh, stoned to rise up. and. That's right. They won't be able to do math and figure out the system. And... <laughs> uh, then for control the flow of revenue, they, they point to the tax code. Uh, interesting. Uh, pay your key supporters just enough to keep them loyal. The example they point to that in the, for the United States is welfare, right? And and Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe, who, whenever facing a threat of military coup, manages to finally pay his army, keeping their loyalty against all odds. And then uh, rule five is uh, don't take one of your supporters' pockets. Is you know a low end, lower end, top end tax rate. Yeah, that's kind of basic. So basically, this framework of Nominal selectorate, real selectorate, winning coalition is kind of like the one of the probably most useful takeaways to come out of this thing. Let, let me just read the example that he uses for rule, or that they use for rule five. Um, Bravo to Senior General Thon Shui of Myanmar, who made sure following the 2008 Nargis cyclone that food relief was controlled and sold on the black market by his military supporters rather than letting aid go to the people. At least 138,000, and maybe as many as 500,000 of whom died in the disaster. Are at a crossroads here, I think, between being able to niche and like kind of celebrate that this is these are the rules of the game and struggle for power and kind of, you know, it ain't no thing. Like, or something you could broadly describe as a humanist impulse to be like, oh, wow, this is this inherently rewards monstrous behavior. Well, I mean, I think I think they're clearly being sarcastic, <laughs> you know, like I think it's designed it's designed to get this, you know, I don't know. Yes. Yes. But like you say, like they they have to dial it back towards the end. But but if you really accept their framework, you have no reason to hope for better. Oh, but but see, here's what you're missing, Esri. 
there's democracy, right? See, they do this thing where they go, okay, obviously these things are all together in one like clear continuum, but for convenience sake, we're going to separate democracy, democracies and autocracies uh, for the purpose of our example. So the, the entire middle part of the book, they do this, and they end up low-key arguing that in demo- because in democracies, the members of you know like the real selected and winning coalitions are larger than they are in autocracies. It, the uh, the worst excesses are set, are essentially avoided, and in fact, it's, it's a completely different thing. You know, <laughs> there's a certain kind of almost uh, qua- quant- yeah, quantity and equality thing that they argue takes place, which is true at a certain level. It's but but they explicitly say the opposite, even if that is what they end up kind of acting as if, because yeah, they do go well. These things don't differ in kind, which would be the difference in quality. But they, but they, but clearly, what you're saying is part of is part of what they're saying, right? Because like, I actually think it's sort of like a virtue that this is such a scorching, cynical theory, and yet you can still express what people mean by the difference between dictatorship and democracy. Because like, you know, by any by any, I don't know, by by like a classical framework, like uh, from I don't know, no one. No one outside of, uh, maybe it's not for us to turn to Aristotle here, right? But like, for Aristotle, elections were an er- a fundamentally aristocratic form of selecting people in power, right? Because it's about organizing votes, more or less, and I guess prefiguring the dictator's handbook, having a sort of cynicism about what the expression of electoral will is actually going to amount to in terms of, you know, outcomes for public good or whatever. Um, whereas like, you know, in that classical schema, something like random, basically was like lots, uh, uh, is what they, is the example that's used, but something that can like weed out the potential for this kind of rationality to take hold is what is described as de- democratic. You know what I mean? Like in, in the ancient world. I don't know. There's um, there's a very like conservative way you can read this book. And then there's a sort of like, you know, a radical reading. An anti-political reading, you could say. But not in the uh, Australian. Uh, <laughs> ver- not, not, the, not of the Australian variety. But just that the, uh, like, that necessarily, like, this is the, like a hyper alienated sphere of power. And you could never really expect something like communism to come from it. You know what I mean? Like when you look at these, if you accept these rules as being the rules of politics and mass power, you know what I mean? Like you don't expect communism to come from this. Like, like I think inherently, and there's something, there's a way of looking at that as, Oh, that's very ideological because obviously communism is going to come from politics or, um, there's a kind of, yeah, you know what? The state sucks actually. And it's like one of the most like, alienated parts of bourgeois society and contrary to their awful advice to extend this to managing families and stuff like because that's really where this gets you is if if you really believe that because some math checks out this way that that's that's what you should do 
you have like a hole in your brain or something like where where your humanity should be right like right (laughs) well i I mean don't get me don't get me wrong like i'm obviously like pro-radical democracy but the what, what bothers me is is that you know they're still basically within the framework of like liberal democracy as the thing and that because if if you look at their policy recommendations later it's very clear you know who this is written for and what they kind of want to happen because they still see they basically still see western like liberal democratic imperial governments as like the vehicles for spreading democracy in the world or not depending on whether it suits the imperial hegemon i was i couldn't believe yeah, that that right that's where the whole thing completely falls apart it well it it has a certain kind of internal coherence it's just really oof it's you know it's literally you know imperialist like rationalization like ideology yes. it's 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 a it's in the classical sense, it's a very sophistic, mathematically sophisticated form of like ideology for empire. <laughs> like, yeah, should we should we just jump ahead and talk about that? I think we should because in game in game theory, because you know you're dealing with a, a subject matter that's pretty instrumental. You do want to skip to the cash value of things sometimes, while also yeah. appreciating the framework. Because just let me say, I don't think that the framework is all that bad. And I think that um, if you're against the political sphere, this is a good way to describe it. But if you're not, you have to have something. Either you're incoherent or you're supporting some like truly heinous things because you feel like it's the Nash equilibrium. Like Okay. So chapter seven they, they, is foreign aid. Uh, yeah, yeah. Too long didn't read version of that is uh, it's bad, folks. Foreign aid is bad. Uh, basically, they argue, and there's the thing is, there's actually some very useful points here. They basically argue that, you know, for, basically paying out foreign aid, even in the wake of national disasters, essentially disincentivizes these governments to appropriate risk management. And that oftentimes, for instance, oh, well, they actually use a very, uh, a very pertinent recent example about how the United States is paying a ton of money to Pakistan. Well, pa- well, Pakistan was secretly harboring bin Laden, and they do a pretty good job actually playing out the rationality behind this because Pakistan essentially needs bin Laden in an ongoing insurgency in order for the United States to continue sending them cash, pay- cash payments. So the very thing that we pay them for in the form of foreign aid uh, is, directly contrast- is directly contrary to our interests. Um, and so the, the, solu- the solution to this is what they argue is money has to be put in escrow in an account and it has to be tied to if – the, if the countries want to receive the money, it has to be tied to preset outcomes by the United States. And reading about this, it kind of made me think about how – you know, like Elaine Badu sometimes talks about how contemporary um, human rights really is like a liberal – is a smokescreen for liberal uh, – for basically liberal capitalist ideology in that – in the form of foreign aid, precisely is precisely done instrumentally in order for the U.S. to advance its its imperial geostrategic interests, right? But it has to basically be masked in the form of something seemingly altruistic like foreign aid. And what they're basically saying here is, 
let's let's just drop that pretense completely let's and just make the veil. Yeah. Yeah. Make aid be based upon cash payments in exchange for preferred outcomes from the from the United States and what they would like to see. And doing this would make it so that you know these governments who would normally just take foreign aid and use it to pay off their cronies would actually have to apply the which there's a certain amount of truth to it, but there's a there's a that the very fact that it works the way it does now is there's a reason for that. Yeah, and, and it's, and the, it's reason the rules is, of political survival that they outline in, in the entire book. Yeah, right. Yeah. So what they basically argue is that <laughs> the United States and the other core imperialist countries are that way precisely because the people there want them to be that way, and therefore they will often and they freely admit this throughout throughout the book. Well, overthrow democratically elected governments and install these very kind of tributary tinpot dictatorships in these countries where the people there democratically decide to go against the imperial interests of the bigger democracy. And their answer to this is, oh, well, that's just one of those things, you know. He specifically cites Iran and Palestine as two situations where the, like, greater democracy was hurt american interests and therefore was bad from the perspective because you know rationality is never like this floating thing above everything else this is a point made throughout the the book rationality is that of an individual like you know it's someone in particular making decisions and um i mean it's i don't know if that is really like consistently applied throughout the book because they overall say that stuff and then end up doing the the nation state as an actor as well which most um most like micro economists do this um whereas they'll create a really cogent way of understanding why collective actors basically don't exist and then they'll treat states as collective actors (laughs) it's hard not to do because it's almost like there are physical and social institutional continuities and that I mean, okay, it's easier to see how things run on this purely tributary relationship when you're looking at extremely underdeveloped countries and and nation states, you know, that are some of which are literally turned by the international community to be failed states, you know, where you have the situation where a significant portion of the society is still living off the land, you know, is not is not active in civic life within the, you know, urban setting in any meaningful sense. You know, like that, that's also something that never enters into their framework at all. You know, it's all just like the forms of government, essentially. Did you see the little like nudge towards Lenin in the beginning of the, of this, of the last chapter? What is to be done? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a little cheeky little title. Yeah, really. Like, I think that's probably where the stuff you find, like, most sort of like, I don't know, inconsistent like in the book is like well again because like nothing within their framework okay so the, the, here's another example say okay they have three different sections like fixing corporations fixing democracy and fixing the third world well first of all fixing corporations one even if you made corporations first of all they say make corporations more democratic to shareholders right as if like there's no nobody else that these corporations could be democratically accountable towards like if you just made these things more democratically accountable to shareholders that wouldn't necessarily produce better outcomes for society at all or even necessarily for shareholders yeah but, but, but this is all like an analogy to like uh, fucking uh 
the the corporate understanding of of democracy as like representation. Right. Well, they're basically saying to because they, they there's a long section uh, towards the middle of the book where they talk about the corporate structure, the structure of corporations, and how a CEO will basically. Uh, use similar tactics to dictators in that they will clear out boards of directors and put them with their own cronies so that they can stay in their job forever and continue to give themselves huge payouts even if the company is performing like shit. And so their solution to that would be to basically create a social media space for shareholders to communicate and then they would be able to – as if that – I I thought we had the <laughs> internet. I could be wrong. I don't know. No, uh, no there's no, for, no, none such thing exists, Jake. For shareholders to communicate and then they'll be able to act – in a more meaningful collective way to get democratic control of corporations as shareholders, whatever. <laughs> Moving please, on. Please, please. Or the, the, the corporation will moderate the fucking thing so that it, it is expressed in accordance to their will, in accordance to the rules and you wrote in your fucking book, you morons. Like, come on. And then yeah, come the next on. one they do is fixing democracy, right? And one is end gerrymandering. Okay. And they go, what they got to do is we have to redesign these districts based upon like computers in a nonpartisan way. It's like, okay, who's going to make that happen? Well, okay, we can do it piece by piece. Okay, well, that's happening. The Democrats will do that, and then the Republicans won't. And so the Democrats will lose ground politically. The Republicans will gain ground with the advantages of gerrymandering, and right. that just makes the problem worse. Because right? of the rules of the game that you put out, and you, and, and you also suspend the tools to critique. That's what drives me crazy about this. I actually think that their theory and like the way that they've worked this out is is sort of a monumental achievement and it's like pretty it's pretty like uh, it's a pretty cool thing like i actually have some respect for this work on a like applied mathematical level and i look forward to looking at what they're talking about cuz i could sort of like read between the lines of some of what they're saying and like think about what math they're using but i want to i i need to know more like I need to know more about why <laughs> they make certain like modeling decisions um, from a from a less political perspective in order to judge how well like how they've applied them. Like you kind of have to know the tools you're working with to know how someone's you know rigging the application of something. Like well, no, I mean, like like say. I said, their their initial framework of you know nominal real select selectorate and winning coalition. Is definitely a useful, a useful lens through which to view any sort of uh, relationship of cronyism, or you could say like tributary relationship in centers of power, both large and small. Like that is that is that is that I think I think that is a genuinely like useful framework, but the pro- in in a certain narrow sense. But when they start to try and like like apply this, well, when they basically use it as a way to shore up like American forward policy or use it as a way to um, sort of essentially like belittle these third world countries like in the face of the United States. I don't know. It just seems like it's, 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 it's just a roundabout way to prop up like contemporary, like liberal democratic thinking. And it is liberal democratic thinking. It is like, because I said there were some far right talking points or whatever, but I, I, I'm maybe misrepresenting it. It's just like centrist imperialism. You know what I mean? Like, right. it's like it's, like, it's Emmanuel Macron shit. Yeah, we we need more. We should have more immigration, but also let's you know make our interventions into the third world even somehow more instrumental. Yeah, the Economist would love this shit. They it's probably got a great review. Well, they, I, their methodology is a is um, 
rational choice theory. It's microeconomics. Like sometimes people refer to microeconomics as a method instead of as a discipline. I think they're wrong, but what they're referring to is rational choice theories applications outside of economics. And this is actually the, I should say that war games and political strategy is what rational choice theory was actually made for. And so microeconomics in a way is, is derivative of, of that. In a way, this is the home turf of rational choice theory. So the, the, in, in, so in tan, just I want to touch the last section. We talked about it a little bit. Fixing the third world. And it's just like, uh, I don't know, like less foreign aid. Uh, but oh, wait. Yeah, oh, what, what we could also do is we could like, you know, let foreign dictators off the hook if they decide to stop doing what they do or whatever. And we could just let them go live in Switzerland. First of all, as if they're not already doing that. But the other thing is like, oh, wait, this could backfire, though, because people realize they were going to jump ship. Their backers could screw them over. So you kind of just have the exact same problem that you have, you know, in any, in any other situation. So that kind of that, they kind of they kind of, again, sort of deflate their own prescriptive uh, statements. But what do you do then within this framework if you have okay you get to the point where you know cutting off the foreign aid works and every every country's a democracy and then you just have you still have like this global imperialist hierarchy of like the big fish eating the little fish you know even if they even if even if they do the right thing and again within this framework why would anyone do the right thing um, and don't back you know strongmen or small selectorate autocratic governments that will provide resources that the larger governments want um you still you still have those same kind of extractive relationships this does not this, this again like a lot of things it falls apart on internationalism well right? no, it, it's not that it the, the disturbing thing is not that it falls apart the disturbing thing is that it's a cogent set of thoughts based on rigorous mathematics that these people wholeheartedly believe because if they say because, right, their model says that's how it should be. But because of the ideological value, you know that on some level, and I think they might be doing applied mathematics acceptably, and what they're describing is sort of an inherently um, unacceptable, like, sort of thing from our viewpoint, you know, like, right. so, so I should, maybe I should the, rephrase. Yeah. yeah Let me yeah. just rephrase real quick. Uh, the book falls apart. Maybe their core underlying theory falls apart, but they don't stick to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I got that. Like, because that's, that's sort of the thing. That's the kind of unfortunate thing is that um, this is a, a sterling example of where there is a really elegant theory that makes a cutting social critique and then the recommendations are all fluff. And so you, you're just left with this searing devastating way to understand the problem very simply and you have no real plausible solutions and the other reason that makes this lib brain is because for them uh and i think this is part of where their blinders come vis-a-vis -vis like you know the, the liberal capitalist imperial core is that they have the same thing that like a lot of liberal democrats have where it's like well look hunter biden didn't get a briefcase full of money slid to him across the table uh, that, and he didn't tell them, okay, now my dad is going to do this thing in the Ukraine for you. So it's not corruption, right? Like for them, corruption has to be like the crudest form of pay to play or exchanging or buying people off or whatever to really be corruption. As pretty much everybody, every every person with half a brain in the United States knows that 
there's massive corruption going on in pretty much every major institution in the country. Maybe the the flows and frameworks and form of, forms of it are a lot more complex and sophisticated and a lot harder to nail down than it is in, say, a regime like you know Venezuela, where it's like, okay, we just got to buy off the army, we got to buy off some members of the civil service, and that's it. But I, I think that I think this might be a pulled punch because if you look at their model, what what should they think about grift? Like it's instrumentally rational, and and therefore by the way that they talked about like foreign aid and spreading democracy, like the model says it. Therefore, this is how it should be. Like. This is the Nash equilibrium in the model, and therefore, this is what you want. Yeah, I mean they they could they could dig into that stuff in the United States. It's much harder. It's it's harder to grasp. But I think on some level, they'd probably. What do you do with a book that just says it's all fucked, <laughs> right? Like that that's got to be like uh, that's gonna be like a semio textbook or something that doesn't get to be published <laughs> by this fucking company. I mean, look at just but look at this guy though. I mean, just like look at him. Like, Al, what's his name? Uh, God, I have I have him up here, Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, on Wikipedia. Yeah. He's yeah. Look at this man. He's yeah. like, Bru- he's, yeah, Bruce the Bruce the Good Mosquito. I mean, he's got like, he's got like some weird like mix of Giga Chad and Chin and Jowls, which make him look just like he's from another planet, like. Okay. Yeah. Alistair Smith just looks like maybe Moby with a better jawline. <laughs> okay, so what we're saying is that these are strong jawed, strong jawed men. All right, like th- that's that's how they've got slipped this past the censor. They just charmed their way and in, into NYU or whatever, and you know, accidentally produced social critique. No, I don't know. Like this is uh, what? Yeah, what do you like? I think stuff like this goes to how little it matters if our situation is dismal. And so like elucidating how bad or depraved or corrupt things are is really most effective for the kind of moralistic whipping up that you do in this kind of politics, right? Like, whereas um, you don't really need to like convince like the people that were, were I, I guess I don't know the the people that we want to touch already sort of know that like on on some level that shit is fucked you don't have to convince them that shit is fucked right mm-hmm. like that shit is like maybe this fucked social critique as it used to be where you have to convince people that society is bad actually like you don't that's that's obs- that's obsolete in a way okay like if Imperialist ideology can start with this scathing a view of its own impulses. Then, I mean, what critique could we do better, like, uh, than to say, "Well, you're all a bunch of pirates, basically. Like, that's how you behave. Like, that uh, politicians are all the same. It's just a matter of degree. Um, like, how much more scathing could you get?" These sort of power games are basically transhistorical, and you know, like in feudalism, they sort of slowed down. You have, you know, regimes of inheritance that help to create like some kind of institutional continuity, right? That's basically how you get like a more semi-stable nobility. I mean, obviously there were still wars and you know 
the different you know peasant rebellions and so on and so forth but you know some degree of like relative stability within this framework across uh, vaster periods of time so like you know the way the idea is behind like the marxist theory is basically the nominative selectorate becomes the real selectorate and to do that like the working class basically has to develop agency and it has to develop agency and well at least within communism like once you once you sort of get past like this period everybody is plugged in on a certain level in some creative way to the society they live in where they live in where they work where they live right like democracy is distributed broadly enough throughout society that you know there isn't just like you know one group of there isn't like industrial society isn't being like directed by like a handful of people you know sitting in sitting in like the government center or whatever it's it's something that's like yeah spread throughout but one thing though that one thing that does seem to be an element that they don't i mentioned this earlier that they don't pick up on is a lot of these tin pot dictators are in underdeveloped places and like how much of that is a direct result of having a wide section of the population that isn't really even subsumed to capital or you know plugged into industrial society is just you know still living more or less as they had for centuries also another thing that they didn't really pick up on that I had some questions about is like they talk about this a little bit in like the section on revolutions and while obviously the nominal selectorate always gets the shit end of the stick there is some kind of legitimation that has to take place and there is a reason for that and that is a part of like every of most regimes again except for in places that there is no uh, existing national polity and there's just again like tribes or warlordism or so forth some real distinction there that i think it's lost lumping all these dictators and all these different places together under or all these autocrats together under just one heading and only analyzing things through this lens of how much democracy they have do they have a little or do they have a lot and completely disregarding you know like the elements of class and labeling everyone as like individuals and not looking at yeah, like the class dynamics, the material dynamics that affect these different societies. Although they argue, they pretty much argue explicitly against material analysis at a certain point in this as well. Where, where is that? Because that seems against the grain of the whole thing. Um, well, there's, there's a part where they're like, um, if you look at, um, for instance, like client elements, like climate or like resources aren't as important as, uh, the amount of people who are a part of the selectorate or whatever. I I forget where that was exactly. <laughs> but okay. I, I do remember yeah, I, 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 I do remember them gesturing in that direction at a couple points. Yeah, I just sort of wonder, like, when you think about this kind of political, like the logic of political survival, and then you think about just, okay, very, here's a sketch of how to, like, deal with this framework. Because when I was younger, I couldn't accept this at all. And I just, I hated this because I was looking for hope within political institutions, essentially. And if you, if you're this scathing about it, you, you really just can't possibly <laughs> hope in political institutions, not consistently. Um, and m- maybe that's fair. Um, so if political institutions operate this way and the logic of political survival is such, consider climate change and consider that there is a tragedy of the commons problem in if you if you're we're thinking nation state actors and climate change right mm-hmm. um where like more so than just capitalism 
competition between nation states really can like is the driving factor between like for for emissions it seems like mm-hmm. it, that seems 100%. seems invariant regardless of your economy um the capitalism can exacerbate it in certain ways but you know uh and anyone familiar with chernobyl knows that you know trying to like do this under you know what was socialism in the 20th century um didn't like it wasn't vastly different honestly Nobody's able to escape the logic of national development. The logic of political survival is going to destroy the logic of human survival more generally. Like, and obviously it won't be distributed evenly because life is very unfair. And um, just to put it simply, a way of thinking is the enemy of humanity. <laughs> like, this needs to be liquidated. Like, like not in the Stalinist way of just lining everyone up and shooting them it, because this is a structuralist piece in a way. I think it's obvious why that won't work because if you ha- leave the structures intact, you could replace them with all new people after shooting all the bad people and they'll get just as bad because that's the rules of the game. And if, and if they're not bad enough, they'll get kicked out. <laughs> right. Society has to be directed by people who are interested more in just staying in power for as long as I possibly can while I'm alive. That's the horizon here. And transcending politics or whatever bong rip shit would mean to moderate this tendency as much as humanly possible in a, in a mass society or even like, I don't know, like trying to, to restructure society somewhat so that this tendency cannot express itself in the way it does in bourgeois society. I don't know what that means, but like, yeah, maybe we just need to have world war three out right now. (laughs) Well, I think it's easy to pass from anti-capitalism into anti-modernity from these feelings though, because we are talking about just the bourgeois alienated, like struggles for power that you go through in mass society. Like president G like, you got to get those fucking traders from Taiwan. Oh my God. They've been eating long enough, right? Jesus Christ. The, uh, the listen, that's Chinese. That's Chinese land. They speak Chinese there. It's Chinese people. You know, it's, they're basically like they're like if the Confederacy took over Cuba. You got to go and get them. Uh, <laughs> Biden, Biden, you have to stand up for democracy and human rights worldwide. You got to. You can't let this kind of thing stand. If you if the, if China takes back Taiwan, next thing you know, they're going to take it back every place that starts with T. Texas. Um, the United States of America, everywhere that starts with yeah, everywhere. You're just egging That's on. It. You're egging on the Roddenberry timeline, and it's like forty years too early, dude. Like yeah, he's w- waited well, out. Like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll get there soon. Let's just yeah, let's just have a, let's just have World War Three out. You know, we can transition to wartime economies, and then you know when it's done, it'll be easier for them to be like okay. You know, you're already used to austerity, so eat the bugs, get in the pods, and put up them solar panels, bitch. I mean, we, we, we can get this dealt with. How I don't know how many layers of irony are we on here? Because like, you know, this is if if we just kind of let this thing run its course, like that's all we're gonna get. Like, and so even just thinking this way makes me feel like a sort of sympathy for you know, like radical ecology and anarchism. That I, mm. I have, you know, I don't know. I had an antipathy towards these sorts of things. Like, I was annoyed at, like, weird, crunchy, hippie, like, fake terrorist leftism or whatever. 
like in the 2000s and you know 90s like i always thought this shit was like weird like and Mm -hmm. and kind of almost like borderline fashy even like in some way like i don't know why i felt that way but stuff like deep green resistance definitely gives like some meat on them bones and um i mean they they are like yeah they are they are that though yeah they are oh yeah yeah like but um the idea is hopefully you know we could maybe maybe humanity is capable of not just being uh atomized individual you know like game theory or i don't you know maybe that's a gate we have to pass through because i think i think maybe it is one thing he points out in here because there's a lot of a lot of like i was saying with like the peasants and um the fact that a lot of these these like especially third world dictators the way they they consolidate their rule is they get rid of the people who cooed with them and then they just bring in family members or people from their tribe right people a lot of this stuff is cannibalistic on like pre-capitalist social formations right like you you can't have this stuff without like this pre-capitalist social relations essentially subsidizing the existence of this thing right so what oh, yeah. happens Once when those people uprooted. are all everybody's uprooted and plugged into this machine you know it's like it they're with 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 those social bonds completely shredded maybe we have at that point then we have to invent something new and maybe we can use like the tools of rationality to do something you know positive (laughs) i mean i I actually do think that that's a situation that that we're in but it's a very dismal it's a dismal situation and like we can't take that the bonds have been shredded so lightly because they tend to be shredded. Well, how do I put this? The, the ways that families operate in class society more generally seem to be intact while the ability for, you know, like most people to have one is kind of shredded. So like, and this is a sort of like kind of weird talking point that like red Browns really like that are pro family, you know, that like, you know, the proletarian family has been annihilated, you know, the bourgeois family is intact, which is bullshit, actually, because bourgeois alienation is, is crazy. Like, it's it's insane. And those people eat their young like hella hardcore. So like, it's not a uh, it's not totally true. But this is the rational kernel of it. Like that. Um, yeah, people really are at, like rather atomized. And when you look at the rational choice model I think I said this before on the podcast to the chagrin of people, you know, people we used to have on the show like that. When you look at the rational choice square, that's a pretty good map for how it feels to live in capitalism right now. Like, like when, when your social ties are annihilated and you're like, you feel like an atom, like of a non-specific person and barely you even care about the details of who you are. Like, (laughs) You just have to make choices and get points. Awful picture, but like, I think we need to be a little more comfortable with that. Like with that, like with this way of analyzing things in order to not be defeated by the institutions that we have to fucking deal with. Like if it was common knowledge among communists that politics worked this way, I think our conversations about this was, would be different. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, actually, you know, maybe I'm being very naive, but like, I think that a lot of young communists, especially believe that there is room for much more agency within 
electoral politics than there is. And th- and even just thinking about politics, subcultural political scenes, social power, and this is where it gets truly disturbing, I think, is when it leaves the realm of formal power and, you know, the economy. And we start getting into the informal social dynamics that are like this, right? Um, where you can't, like, talk about politics or host reading groups or, like, do podcasts or whatever without getting involved in power struggles like these based on logic like this, like, to some degree, like, a dispersed form of it. And that you can't deal with mass institutions without encountering something that is in, you know, not in the spirit of this book, not different in kind from the, the, the sort of like logic of political survival that should be a million miles away, but strangely isn't, you know, people will behave this way over like low stakes shit. Like. Yeah. Well, because you have to, that's the problem. Like to really undo this, like you have to, if you really want to like, uh, like, like I think in terms of like global warming and stuff like that, yeah, I think you those are problems that could be tackled within that in principle could be tackled within the framework of class society. Will they? I don't know. But I think the communist project is to create a world where you undo this logic. And if you have a situation where you're satisfying everyone's material needs at a basic level. Um, it doesn't create the same kind of desperation to get into the, these these petty rackets. I, I, that's right. that's part of the gambit here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that if if people's self definition is not based upon yeah like loyalty or or uh, their ability to to eat based upon their proximity to different centers of power, uh, and instead based upon you know their development of themselves and the people around them and mankind. You know, you could have, you know, a truly holistic uh, individual and collectivity and like, you know, you could actually have like a, a holistic sense of humanity. Uh, but to pass through that, you know, people ro- will probably have to get their hands dirty. But the trick is to not follow fall into this trap where, you know, everything where it's like, OK, we have to get power to, to do the thing. But to keep power, we have to do all this other shit first, and then hopefully maybe we have a little some crumbs left over that we can put towards socialism at the end. You have to be able to be like, ultimately, you can't get sucked into the game enough where you follow the rules of the game. You like you have to, in other words, be mostly aside the swamp. You might storm the swamp for an incursion, but you leave. You can't stay in. If you go in the swamp, if you march into the swamp, if you do anything but, like, maybe, like, attack it from the sidelines, like, and, you know, dip your feet in to fucking steal something, or I don't know, whatever. Like, but, you know, like, really, like, if even doing that much, like, it sounds paranoid. It really does. It sounds, it sounds a little insane if you're not familiar with power, this with the rules of the game. But if you are familiar with the rules of the game, you understand why you want to keep your feet out of the swamp. Like this, you know, (sighs) one thing I will give this book, this book credit for is that they are right. Like it would be better if more people understood how this stuff worked. Yeah. Uh, 
I I just wish they'd committed more towards the bit and you know sort of unmasking the whole thing. But I think on some level, you know, they still believe they still believe in like liberal democracy, um, and they just can't like bring themselves to at least here explicate the full implications of their ideas. Yeah, and I, there is so much um, grappling with communist dictatorship in this book. I wonder, you know, where they're at with like a Dongus kind of program, because there's, there's a part on, you know, ex- public work expenditures where he praises Deng Xiaoping and this is Mao Zedong. I was just like, that's interesting, you know, like, well, yeah, he lumps, he lumps in, he lumps Deng in with that, pre- I forget his name, the longtime president of Singapore, who Deng modeled a lot of his policies off of. Uh, he kind of describes them essentially as benevolent dictatorships. They're like these are the rare benevolent dictators. I all right. I think we clocked the dongest. <coughs> yeah, that's that's how he's that's how he's talking. <coughs> Communist China, the United States. It's you know they're they're just they're not even different kinds of thing. They're basically the same thing. Don't worry about it. I mean the electorates ah this electorate. The real selector, it's a little bigger, you know? No big deal. I, I like that the book can go both ways because you're you're upset about how Cold War it is. And I'm like, this is pretty relativistic about, like, elections. Like, <laughs> and how meaningful elections are. Which, like, I'll readily admit that, you know, American electoral institutions are super old, conservative, built to favor slaveholders gerrymandered like fuck basically around melanin percentage like you know pretty decrepit like reactionary kind of structure to the institution but like you know is a representative form of government in the way that china and the ussr isn't like like for the reasons that robert brenner elucidated about how you know real political citizenship is you know, is sort of tantamount to, like, being able to control the, like, relations of exploitation. So you can't, like, really run the society that way. Like, um, so I don't know. Like, I, I like that the book could rustle both of our jimmies. I think this book is, is, is built to rustle jimmies. Like, and my jimmies are definitely rustled. Like, but I don't know. I, I... I sincerely hope this person maybe like can accept that just because it says it on the page doesn't mean you do it. Like, <laughs> I wonder how much they're exaggerating because I know that there are some microeconomists that are probably not exaggerating. And according to the behavioral scientist and uh, analytical ex-Marxist um, Herbert Gintest, about ten percent of people are are just sociopaths. <laughs> I, lo- I love how it just sounds like he's just like shooting off the cuff. He's just some guy at like, you know, the bagel store. But this guy like has run a lot of like, like, you know, behavioral science experiments like like a- across the globe and just like just really confidently right. makes these statements about human nature, like in a way that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Ten percent. Not eight. Not nine. No. Which, not 13. Which, well, he says about 10%. He, he'll, he'll always okay. qualify this or that because uh, standard, you know, standard deviation, whatever. Like, um, yeah, I don't know. 
Game Theory is some shit. Like, Game Theory and Evil are like peanut butter and jelly. You know? Like, um, they really go well together. And it's sort of, like, unfortunate that this is the case. But it makes perfect sense because of the nature of instrumental rationality. Like, and, you know, getting one over on somebody. Like, which, in a, there's a sort of, like, I don't know like German philosophical context saturated with Immanuel Kant, where, you know, using people is bad that Marx comes from with the critique of exploitation. And yet the tradition Marxism is noted for its ruthless Machiavellianism and its extraordinary ability to instrumentalize everything in life to politics. Like, like literally, like that's, you know, that's like the calling card of, of the tradition, unfortunately. Like, um, it's like, I don't know, it's a, it's a wonder that like, it's a wonder that people are Marxists in a way, considering that history. But I mean, as one, <laughs> I can't think of like a better like vantage point to like kind of shake my head at the whole thing and like than to like try to incorporate this stuff into an analysis of the things that he's not analyzing, like <laughs> the things that he doesn't care about, the things that he's comfortable rubber stamping um, in this book that, you know, while I admire on one level, you know, this is like the, this is the most like enemy camp neoliberal shit we've ever read. And it's like, it has that mathematically rigorous like edge that I, I actually appreciate. And so it's like, I don't know. It's like a, it's like a beautiful looking pie that's full of, you know, something, I don't know, something weird. One thing I did actually kind of want to talk about that we never got to um, with this text is I was thinking recently about the, um, there was that article not too long ago where so, like one of the generals was reflecting on the whole like January 6th thing. And they, apparently they were saying to each other like, well, he knows he can't do this without us, right? <laughs> <laughs> And oh I don't know. It's kind of funny. That sounds that amazing, actually. I'd like to read that. There, there was this kind of thing where it's like I was thinking, thinking about like uh, the January sixth thing, where you know it was like this may be a continuation of the conversation we had on the. I was thinking about this when I was editing the last episode, um, where you were saying like Trump didn't know what he was. You said I think you said something to the effect of like Trump didn't really know what he was doing when he was speaking to those crowds or whatever, or what he was stirring up. I think that's kind of true, but I think he was deliberately trying to stir shit up because it kind of matched. He didn't. It matches. He didn't know that he was saying we should storm the Capitol. Like he was trying to stir shit up, but he didn't understand. I think he wanted them to. I think it was very vague, but his because his entire political strategy up to that point, what he'd always done was just escalate shit. Right. Anytime something came up, just turn up the heat. And so I think he wanted them to do something that would put some kind of political pressure on the Republicans in Congress because the main power that he had over the Republican Party was his apparent Svengali-like hold over the base of the party. And so I don't know if he thought it was going to be a protest or what, or maybe he didn't think it, it will, could be up to something like that. We will go to the Capitol. Like, you know, what, you know, I don't remember it word for word, Like, but like, what does that mean? Right. Something like that, though, only could have happened under Trump because yeah. anybody... <laughs> Anybody who understood the mechanisms of government 
that he was go- that he was in charge of like better would have either a most likely not have attempted something like that in the first place or b would have made certain to secure like the proper uh the proper support from like the essentials and real selectorate before right. actually attempting something like that right yeah whereas trump it was just kind of like this half-assed <laughs> intensification of what he'd been doing the entire time right which is go out and be like like if if, he, if i was running the nfl and he took he had blow his knees off you know yeah like it would be so you know it would right. just taking that to the umpteenth degree to the point where you know it basically gets into this riot that gets out of yeah hand. he just boomer tweets his way into a coup like not really yeah bullshit I think his his idea was basically like I'm gonna turn the I'm gonna they're gonna do something and then that expands my range of options. You know, maybe it gets so crazy I have to declare martial law, or you know, maybe enough of the Republicans shit their pants that they decide to stop the votes. You know, maybe Mike Pence changes his mind. I you know, it could have been. Any, I think he was just trying to expand his option, but it could have included. I think he would have been comfortable with him. The generals being like, guys, you got to do martial law. We can't be counting four votes right now. There's a riot outside. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think yeah, I think he would have been comfortable. I don't think he would have said no, no, please, no. He wanted to get power again, but he just you know he didn't have any plan. It it is kind of it's kind of an, an amazing perfect storm. It's like you know, a perfectly American insurrection. You know, <laughs> it was it was it was never any real danger of working. No. Like there was there was maybe like a very like if all the right things had clicked in place, maybe <laughs> maybe he could have stumbled his way into a successful coup. But that's like that's one out of like ten thousand timelines, you know. Not with these institutions, like, uh, it, it, like these institutions seeming, or or is it more stochastic than that? You know. Well, no. Well, the problem was they weren't. Nobody was invested enough in Trump specifically. That's the problem. Like, like the generals, like they're they're. Their payouts come from different places. They aren't like dependent on Trump. Like, like it's not a tin pot dictatorship in that they are dependent on Trump for the cash flow. Personally, he didn't follow the book. He didn't get right, a hold of right, the money. Right. If he, if he had say like I don't know, nationalized under the executive like the entire military industrial complex, that now maybe you got something, right? You basically all those like Boeing, all those companies. You basically, I don't know do something to basically nationalize them and, and put them under direct control of the executive branch of government. Now you got the generals by the balls. See, this book <coughs> this book actually has useful advice. Yeah, but then right? you'd piss off all the influentials that own Boeing <laughs> and own these things. Well, you, well I think it, well, what do they say in chapter 2? <laughs> S, S, 3. Speed is essential. Speed is essential. So what you got to do is yeah. Once, once you, once you basically seize, you, you seize, <laughs> you seize the corporations. Then the generals will do what you want. Then you seize the Fed, right, right? Right. Which, which then immediately you have massive leverage over the financial system. You can bring them to heel, right? right. Now, now, now you got something. All right. Here's how Bernie. Here's how Bernie can still <laughs> win. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, we're learning lessons here. Today. Yeah. That's it for this time. If you want to get hold of us, you can email us at swapsidechats at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to support the show, hit up our Patreon. And, uh, yeah. So, until next time, 
keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.